is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, just before we get into the podcast today, we get asked all the time, how can I help with Undaunted Life? Right? So we'll get emails, we'll get messages on social media. Like, how can we help? And guys, there's a lot of ways that you can help, but the best and easiest ways to help are pretty simple. It's consume our content, share our content, and leave a review. Okay, so just by virtue of the fact that you're listening to this podcast, that helps us. It helps us with our numbers, helps us with our downloads. Also, share this content with people around you, okay? The thing about podcast growth or show growth or you know business growth or any of those types of things, if you keep your favorite stuff a secret and you keep it from those around you that are like-minded, that would get something out of it, just like you're getting something out of it, that doesn't do the business or the podcast or whatever uh, a service at all. So share this content around with the people that you think would appreciate it and also leave a review. Now, and depending upon where you're listening to this, whether it's on you know Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or now on iHeartRadio, they all kind of have different ways to leave reviews. Some you can leave a five-star review, some you can leave this. But anytime you actually interact right? When you take that next step of leaving a review or the five stars or something like that, that really does help us out. So that's my commercial right from the beginning because a lot of you guys have been asking questions about how you can help. That is the biggest way that you can help. And a lot of you guys have been asking questions just in general. And guys, it has been a very, very long time since we did a Q&A podcast. We're kind of averaging one every three or four months now just because we get such good content out there with stuff going on in the world and with interviews. Questions have definitely been piling up. So we'll get into my thoughts on this episode on the Canadian pastor that was arrested and jailed for preaching a sermon. Yes, if you haven't heard of that. So stick around with us and we will tell you all the details there. We'll get into the Andrew Cuomo scandal, the supposed Ted Cruz scandal, the Gina Carano scandal, her getting fired, the viral video of the OU football player getting stomped into the ground in a bar bathroom. And guys, if you stick with us until the end of the podcast, I will tell you whether or not Tom Brady is now the overall GOAT, regardless of sport. You would not believe the number of people that want to talk about that. But yes, that is the conversation. Is Tom Brady basically the GOAT GOAT, as I'll call it. But let's go ahead and get into the first part of the podcast today. And it's, you know, the first question is not a fun one to answer, but we're going to get into it anyway, because I know a lot of you guys have been talking about it in a lot of different circles. So here's the question. In light of the new finalized report detailing Robbie Zacharias's sexual assault double life, are you now comfortable with completely canceling him and his ministry? Okay, so a little bit of backstory for some of you. I released episode 169 of this podcast late last year. It was called RIP Robbie Zacharias. Okay, so he had died earlier in 2020, and, you know, because of us having a baby and, you know, a, a large schedule of other podcasts and the run up to the election, I didn't get to my thoughts on the Robbie Zacharias passing and his importance to the overall Christian ministry and apologetics and things like that. So on that episode, I talked a little bit about his alleged sexual assault, because essentially a few weeks before that podcast was recorded, there was some allegations that he had performed some sexual assault. And for those of you who don't know Ravi Zacharias is just real quick. He's just a world renowned author and speaker and apologist. But essentially I stated that, you know, I hated the fact that Robbie Zacharias was not there to defend himself. That's what I talked about. You know, I went through all the reasons why, you know, I really appreciated Robbie and his ministry. And then at the end, I'm kind of talking about this, but ultimately I wanted us all to withhold judgment until the investigation was completed. Because at the time of my recording of episode 169, there was an announcement of an investigation, but there had been nothing that came out about the investigation. Another thing I said in that episode is that it wouldn't surprise me one bit if the allegations were true. 
right? Um, again, I, I think we get into this hero worship mode about people that we like, whether they're in politics or sports or ministry, and we just assume that those people can't do any wrong. Well, I always assume people can do wrong. There's basically no one in my life that it would surprise me if they did something dirty or dark. Also, I talked about how I was cynical about the independence, you know, quote unquote, of the independent investigation. I didn't think RZIM would put themselves in the crosshairs like that. I assumed that they would do everything they could do to cover this up. I also talked about how I was unwilling at that point to throw out all of the contributions Ravi and really his team had made for the kingdom of God based on, at that moment, unsubstantiated and unprovable allegations. Okay. And this is something that I said at the very end, and I'm actually going to quote myself here just so you know, I'm not taking myself out of context. I said this. I don't think there's going to be this big breaking news thing where we see this evidence that comes through that proves anything. Okay. That's what I said. And lo and behold, I couldn't have been more wrong. Okay. So I spoke about this further on episode 172. It was the year in review 2020 episode. And I talked about it at the beginning of that episode. And this was after the brief was released about the investigation. And this was from the independent law firm that was basically investigating this. And it stated that yes, Indeed, Robbie Zacharias had engaged in sexual misconduct. Okay. That's essentially all that they really admitted to it. And I, I'm not really comfortable with the the terminology sexual misconduct because that that could it be a lot of different things. And the things he did were pretty heinous, even in terms of what was just expressed there in that little brief. So what I said in that episode is that it was horrible for the women directly affected. And that's the number one thing we should all be thinking about. We shouldn't be thinking about Robbie. We should be thinking about the women that he took advantage of sexually. That was horrible for his family. Um, I don't know if we can assume that his wife and children knew he was leading this double life or, or how much they did know, but it was horrible for them and their legacy because they carry around his name and they will likely do that forever. Um, I also talked about how I wouldn't take his book off of our book list. Because we have a book with him and a co-author that was on our 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list, which is on our website. Then also, I talked about how I would continue to read and listen to his teachings and, and would do so without any issues. Okay? But now, we have the full report. So approximately two weeks ago, the full report was released by this internal, you know, private investigation or whatever, not an internal investigation, excuse me, but the private investigation done by an outside third party. And I got the show notes here for you, and you'll have that link in the show notes to the report so you can read it for yourself. But the report is absolutely terrible. And I don't mean how the report was done. I mean the contents of it. It is horrible what Robbie Zacharias did. Um, it talks about everything from unwanted touching to sexting to massages where he demanded happy endings to massages with forced happy endings, also known as rape. It also detailed spiritual abuse. It detailed financial abuse. Essentially, some of the masseuses that he was taking advantage of had some bills that they needed to be t- paid. So they came to Robbie, almost like a father or a grandfather figure to try and help them. And he said he would continue helping them, but they had to do things for him. It's kind of this quid pro quo type of a thing. And so horrible, 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 horrible. Makes me sick talking about it. But here are the big takeaways that I have from this Robbie Zacharias situation. Then we'll move on to some other questions, okay? The first thing is never worship a human being. I kind of talked about that a little bit ago. Never worship a human being. They will always let you down. That doesn't mean that you can't be a fan of people. That doesn't mean you can't support people. You know, I was on the phone with, you know, a fan of mine from Canada the other day. And I would tell him, hey, man, don't, don't get to the point where you worship me. If you want to be a fan of the stuff that I do and the stuff that we do with this ministry and with this business, fine. That, that's fine. But at the same time, don't put me on a pedestal. 
Don't put anybody on a pedestal because we're humans, we're fallible, and we do bad things and we do them on purpose. So don't worship human beings. Another takeaway for you is real accountability is required and should be required for Christian organizations. And the reason why I say real accountability is because Ravi Zacharias, apparently, on a lot of occasions when he would travel overseas, which was essentially all the time, the guy was traveling and doing dates all over the world for hundreds of days a year, every single year for decades. And he would travel with a male member of his staff. And so that was supposed to basically get rid of any ideas that he was traveling alone, that he might have women in his room, he never traveled with a woman, those types of things. But apparently he owned apartments um, in the kind of the Far East. He owned one in Thailand and one some some other place. He had a masseuse that would travel with him that would come to his room and stay there for a, quite a long time. You know, he would go to these other massage parlors and things around the world and stuff like that. And so there wasn't real accountability. It seemed like all the accountability was on the other people in the RZIM organization. And there was no way to really touch Ravi Zacharias, who was at the top of the organization and the namesake of the organization. So that's a major problem. Another thing is I have ended up removing his book from our book list. Okay. But let me go ahead and explain why. So just so you know, guys, the hundred books, every modern Christian man should read list, which is on our website, go to undaunted.life, www.undaunted.life. You can get the book list there. There are constantly books coming onto that list and leaving that list. Okay. I'm putting book, new books on there. I'm taking other books off. I don't really keep track of the books that I take off and I take them off for a myriad of reasons. And one thing I will tell you before all this stuff went down, okay, the book that I put on there by Ravi Zacharias, I think it was Jesus Among Secular Gods, really, really good book, but it wasn't like an astounding book, but I really, really wanted a Ravi Zacharias book on my book list. I wanted him to be on there, okay? But again, it wasn't really the, the world's best book. It wasn't the most otherworldly book. It wasn't the most, most earth-shattering book, Okay. But then in light of all of this stuff that had, that had come out, his name became a lightning rod. Okay. And so the fact that his book was kind of always on the chopping block a little bit for me, I was only holding on to it because I wanted a Ravi Zacharias book on my list. I ended up deciding that we could go ahead and replace it with some other really, really good books. Right. I think whenever I took that book off the book list about a week or two ago, you know, I took two or three other books off and added two or three more books. So it was just kind of a, a normal shakeup of the book list, but I don't want it to seem like it was me going back on my previous word. At the same time, I think it's important. and We'll get to this in a second to, to learn from the lessons that he put out there. But at this point, there weren't really any redeeming qualities for having a Robbie Zacharias book on our book list. Okay. Especially if there's not an explanation, but I did add a caveat on our book list to where it's like, okay, now there's not, okay. When you're looking at these authors that are on the book list, I guarantee you out of the hundred books, and I think there's 97 different authors, you're going to find something that one of those people did or said that you don't agree with, or that the modernity does not agree with, right? Uh, you could look at, I've got, you know, the, the adventures of Tom Sawyer on there. The N word is in that book. Okay. That's a big famous book that's been around for a very, very long time. And it's going to be canceled if it hasn't already. But again, I don't know that many people would understand the context of why that word was used in that book and why the author decided to put it in there. So there's a lot of things that you could cancel a lot of the authors on that book list for, but very few of them have the, the blatant bad name on them as a Ravi Zacharias. Okay. But this is kind of the next point that I want to make. I will continue. And I encourage you to continue this as well, to read the words of Ravi Zacharias and listen to his speeches 
And again, I think you should too. Because the value of the philosophical arguments that he was making and that he taught to droves, millions of people is still important. The fact that he was leading a double life, that he had this duplicitous nature to him, that does not remove the, the good things that he did, right? So think about it in a very, very simplistic way. Let's say that someone a week ago said two plus two equals four. And then a few days ago, they murdered somebody. And then today you say, well, I guess two plus two doesn't equal four anymore. You, you would never say something silly like that. I know that's a dumb example. But at the same time, just because he was doing these awful, heinous things does not mean the things that he was saying in the context of apologetics or preaching the gospel that those things are wrong. As I think I mentioned in one of those previous episodes, it does make you kind of look at him a little bit askant whenever he talked about any type of sexual purity or morality. And that's why I say anyone that you listen to, that you know about who they were and the awful things that they did or said or believed, you have to take that all with a grain of salt and you have to take that all into the totality of evaluating what they've done for humanity. An example I use all the time is Thomas Jefferson. He owned slaves. He raped slaves. He was a horrific person when it came to the, the, his personal in relationship with slavery. But he also wrote the Declaration of Independence, which was an abolitionist document and was used as such to end slavery in the United States of America. So you can't just cancel him altogether, because if you cancel him altogether, you cancel the document that helped lead to the freeing of the slaves. And so canceling Ravi Zacharias' books and, and Ravi Zacharias' speeches and just scrubbing him from, from all types of outlets and, and content doesn't exactly help, because his arguments can still help people. It can still help bring people to Christ. And kind of the last question on the Robbie thing, and I promise we'll move on to the next subject. I've heard people ask this question, whether online or in interviews or something like that. And the question is this, if I was saved at an event led by Robbie Zacharias, am I still saved? This might be the shortest answer to any of the questions that I give you today. The answer is simply yes. The blood of Christ is what matters, not the person that delivered the gospel message to you. The person that delivers the gospel message is a conduit through which the Holy Spirit works. That, that's all that means. So if you are saved at a Ravi Zacharias event, you are saved. The blood of Christ covers you. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all at the same time, and he paid it for you. It's pretty simple in my mind. All right, guys, we'll move on to the next thing here. Next question. Do you think it was a big deal for Ted Cruz to go on vacation to Cancun while most Texans were without power in the frigid temperatures? So uh, just to give you a little bit of a background, because there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that aren't from this country. Ted Cruz is a senator. We have 100 senators here in the United States, two from all of our 50 states. He is the one from Texas. He is one of the two from Texas. And Texas, and really the entire country, had a massive snow and ice storm, the frigid temperatures. And I felt it here in Oklahoma. We had one day where we were negative 15 degrees in temperature. That is not common at all. Not common literally at all, but they were having some similar problems down in Texas. They had lost power because the power grids, because of the failure of the wind turbines, and also the fact that a lot of the gas plants and nuclear plants were either tripped to where they turned off or they were under some sort of maintenance. Basically, Texans, millions of Texans were without power, without heat, some of them without even water. And so Ted Cruz decides in his infinite wisdom that he and his family should go to Cancun, Mexico and literally, you know, I was going to say chill out, but it's the opposite of that. Warm up for, for about a week. 
Well, someone took a picture of him in the airport. And then also one of his neighbors shared like a group text that he and his wife were on, you know, kind of planning this trip, shared that with the New York times. And then boom, it was front front page news, right? Big time front page news that he was in Mexico while Texans were absolutely freezing. And, you know, people were in really, really dire circumstances. So this is what I can say about the situation. Number one, horrific optics. I mean, my goodness, Ted Cruz is a really, really smart guy and a very talented politician. What were you thinking? I mean, again, the, the optics were just crazy and it was politically foolish of him to do that. So duh, I, I will just say that right from the very beginning. But I will also say that the outrage is completely ridiculous and transparent because what was Ted Cruz going to be doing exactly if he had stayed in Texas? Now, again, I think he should have, if he wanted to send his family to Cancun, no big deal, but you got to stay. But all he would have been staying for would have been photo ops, you know, handing out bottles of water to people handing out, you know, warm cups of soup, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, shoveling someone's driveway. Like what exactly was he going to be doing? He is a federal representative, not a state representative. He can't do anything. The governor does things. Mayors do things. You know, the, the local representatives, the city councils, those are the people that are doing things to affect change in that state. Ted Cruz can't do anything about that. But the outrage was so transparent because of how ironic it was that they were only losing their minds about Ted Cruz. This was front page news on every news outlet. It was talked about at the top of all the news shows that a senator decided to go to Cancun and then he came right back after he felt the political pressure. But do we just forget about all the Democratic politicians that have been doing this the entire time of COVID? Just as a reminder, Nancy Pelosi, Democratic Congresswoman and Speaker of the House, she got her hair did and then blamed the owners of the establishment because she got her hair did in a state where you're not allowed to go and get your hair did, right? Remember all that? How about Gavin Newsom, Democratic Governor of California, Mr. Lockdown? He goes to the French Laundry, an indoor restaurant, whenever you can't do indoor dining in the state of California. How about Steve Adler, you know, Democratic Mayor of Austin, Texas? He told everyone not to travel in this, in this big kind of, you know, message to all the people of Austin, to the people of Texas, and to the people of the world while he was in Cabo on vacation with his family. Hey guys, you don't travel, but you know, I got to travel. How about Lori Lightfoot, Democratic mayor of Chicago? Remember when she got her hair cut early on in the pandemic? And she said, well, it's because, you know, I take my health seriously and you know, I'm, I'm the public face of Chicago and I want to look good and all that. And guys, there's many, many others. But again, this is not a big deal. It really, really is not a big deal. It looked terrible. It was politically foolish, but it's not a big deal. But you needed that story to cover up other stories. And we'll certainly get into the story about Andrew Cuomo here in a little bit, but we'll take a slight divergence with the next question here. And we're going to go into this. We go into this basically with every Q and a, but we got some upcoming UFC fights and I'm going to give you some fight predictions. Guys, some of my fight predictions are pretty good, but a lot of them are terrible. So I'm just going to give it to you right up front. That is the fight game, but we got uh, about a half dozen here that we're going to go over that are going to be happening in the next month, month and a half. So UFC fight night, Rosenstrike versus Gein. Uh, this is happening this Saturday. If you're listening to this on time, Saturday, February the 27th. So the headliner of that, the main event is Jarzinho Rosenstrike, who is the number third ranked heavyweight and Surreal Gan, who is the, basically, I think he's the number eighth, eighth or ninth ranked heavyweight. So in this fight, this is 
kind of an interesting fight for the heavyweight division. I think the winner of this fight is going to be putting themselves maybe one fight away from a title shot, if not putting themselves right into a title shot after the heavyweight title is competed for here in a, in a few weeks, which I'll talk about more here in a little bit. But my prediction for this fight is I got Surreal Gone in this fight. He's an incredibly skilled striker. So is Jarzinho Rosenstrike. He's got a lot of power, but Gone is also finishing people on the ground. He's not a one-dimensional fighter. And I want to point everyone back to a fight that Jarzinho Rosenstrike had with uh, Alistair Overeem. Okay, so Alistair Overeem won 24 minutes and 50 seconds right, of that fight. And then he got caught with a huge overhand right, which split his lip and knocked him out in the last 10 seconds of that fight. But he was getting dominated. Okay. Surreal Gan is basically a younger version of Alistair Overeem. Alistair Overeem is probably one of the most skilled strikers in any division, but Surreal Gan is, is one of those skilled strikers. So I just don't know that Rosenstrike is going to be able to stand with him for very long unless he hits him with a huge shot. I got Surreal Gan in that fight. Then we've got UFC 259. That's next week. So that's Blahovich versus Adesanya. That's on March 6th. So let's go through the three title fights that are going to be there on that card. The first title fight of the night is going to be Petr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling. And this is going to be for the Bantamweight title fight at 135. So this is, should be a very entertaining fight. These are both very talented fighters. Obviously, they're fighting for the title. And usually title fights at these lower weights, there's a little bit more fireworks for whatever reason. But I got Petr Jan. I think this is the type of guy that the only guy in the division that I think right now can really give him problems is going to be TJ Dillashaw. And I know for a lot of you that, that follow the sport closely, you know that TJ Dillashaw is about to come off of a two-year ban for using PEDs when he went down to try to take the title from uh, Henry Cejudo at 125. But he's the guy that has the most skill in that division. And that there are some other guys that I think are, are worthy of mention. But I think he's the only guy that's really going to give Petr Jan a, a true run for his money right now. Uh, again, there's some other guys that, that might be coming out here in a little bit, but I got Petr Jan in that fight. He is the minus 150 favorite, barely a favorite, but I got him in that fight. Then we've got Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson, and that is the women's featherweight title. That's 145. So Amanda Nunes is a minus 1200 favorite against Megan Anderson. Okay. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. If you don't know what that means, basically you have to bet $1,200 to win a hundred bucks if Amanda Nunes wins. Okay which I'm not suggesting that you bet, but I'm just telling you what the, the odds are. Here's the thing. The 145-pound women's division is not a real division, okay? There are a handful of girls, women, that are actually 145-pound fighters, where, which means they walk around heavier than that, but then they cut to 145. That's where they are. Essentially, most of the people that fight at women's featherweight, these are bloated 135-pounders. These are 135-pounders that are basically taking a fight so they don't have to cut weight or cut much weight. So Megan Anderson is big. Like, she's tall. She's long. She is a legitimate 145-pound fighter. Amanda Nunes is not really a legitimate 145-pound fighter, but that's not really going to come into account in this fight. Megan Anderson is not a very skilled fighter. So she has beaten other women in this division. She has had some good showings, but she got beat really bad by Holly Holm. She got dominated by Holly Holm. And Amanda Nunes kicked Holly Holm. They head kicked her basically to Pluto, right? This is not going to be a close fight. I don't think this is going to be a competitive fight. The only competitive fight right now for Amanda Nunes is if Valentina Shevchenko comes up from 125 and fights her at 135. That's the only one that I think has the skill to beat her. And they've already done that fight twice and Amanda Nunes won both times. 
Okay, so I don't think it's going to be a close fight. I think Amanda Nunes wins big, probably finishes her. And then the main event of the night is Jan Blachowicz versus Israel Adesanya. And this is for the light heavyweight title. So Israel Adesanya is currently the middleweight champion, the 185-pound champion in the UFC. He is going up to light heavyweight 205 to fight Jan Blachowicz. So Blachowicz just won the title. Okay, so there was the vacated title from John Jones. Blachowicz beat uh, Dominic Reyes. And then I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying this. I think there were a lot of people that were interested in fighting Jan Blachowicz. Okay, he's a very, very strong, powerful fighter. But most people would not look at him and think that's a very skilled fighter. So John Jones was thinking, hey, maybe I won't go to heavyweight. Maybe I'll come back and fight Jan. And then you got Israel Adesanya that was all but chomping at the bit to go up to 205 to try snatch snatch a second title. Okay. Now there are contenders at 185. It wasn't like there he had cleaned out the division by any, any stretch of the imagination. Okay. But he's running up there. He's a minus 250 favorite. And I got to be honest with you. I think Israel Adesanya wins this fight. So Adesanya has shown to have a very good chin. We saw that in the fight that he had with, um, oh shoot, Kelvin Gastelum. I almost forgot the fight he had with Kelvin Gastelum. He he got rocked a couple of times, but he did not go out. Jan Blachowicz has way more power than Kelvin Gastelum, and he's a much bigger person. But I just don't know that I'm going to see him connect with a big shot. Israel Adesanya took basically one big shot from Romero uh, about a year ago whenever they did their fight. It didn't really affect him that much. So I think Israel Asani is going to pick Jan Blachowicz apart and get his second belt. Then he'll keep talking trash about John Jones. But I think John Jones is way past 205 now in terms of being able to cut to get back down there. Word on the street is, is he's getting enormous now that he's decided to become a heavyweight. So who knows? Israel Asani might decide if John Jones wins the heavyweight title at some point this year or next year that he's going to go up and maybe get a third belt. Who knows? And then we've got another UFC coming up, UFC 260. That's Miocic versus Ganu, And so that is coming up in late March. I, I forgot the date here, but yeah, you can just look it up. But there's two title fights on there that I'm going to talk about. There's Alexander Volkanovsky versus Brian Ortega. And so Volkanovsky is a minus 200 favorite. He's a two to one favorite. But Brian Ortega, you got to remember, before he beat Korean Zombie a few months ago, his last fight was against Max Holloway, like almost two years previous to that. And he got beat to crap in that fight. Max Holloway absolutely snatched his soul. They basically had to stop the fight in between the fourth and fifth round because he was getting beat up so bad. Okay. But the way he looked against Korean Zombie was just absolutely stunning. He looked like a world beater. I I could not believe how well he did in that fight. But Alexander Volkanovsky is maybe not going to do anything to wow you. He's not really knocking a lot of dudes out, but he did just beat Max Holloway twice in a row. I disagree with the decision on the second fight, but the first fight, he he absolutely won that fight. But the thing about this fight, I think Alexander Volkanovsky is going to win. I think he's going to retain his title. But no matter who wins this fight, Max Holloway's next. What Max Holloway just did to Calvin Cater is absolutely astonishing. I've never seen more of a one-sided beatdown that didn't end in a finish in a five-round fight. It was absolutely astonishing. And so I think whoever wins, whether it's Volkanovski or Ortega, I do not think Volkanovski is going to be able to beat this Max Holloway for a third time. And I still think the gap between Ortega and Max Holloway is way too big. So I think the bigger thing about this fight is it's just basically who's going to be defending their title against Max Holloway and basically losing it to him. And then we've got the big fight, the rematch. We've got the heavyweight title, Stipe Miacic versus Francis Ngannou. And Francis Ngannou is a minor favorite. Basically, by the time this fight comes around, it's going to be a pick type of a deal. But the first time that they fought, Francis Ngannou had basically starched all these people in a row. He comes into this fight. Apparently, he hadn't been training very much. He didn't train his cardio. And Stipe just ate some of his bigger shots. 
and then just wrestled him for another five rounds. It was an incredibly boring fight. There were no fireworks. Stipe took no chances. He didn't do himself any favors with the fans, right? But it was a completely one-sided fight that Stipe Miocic won. However, I think this time Francis Ngannou sends him into orbit. I really do. Stipe is a very, very skilled fighter. He beat DC and uh, to get his title back and basically to defend it for the first time. He's an incredibly skilled fighter. But Francis Ngannou has something that really no one else in the sport has, except for maybe Derek Lewis, who might have the heaviest hands in the entire sport. He doesn't have to throw a good punch. He just has to get it close. He's knocked out people by hitting them on the jaw, hitting them in the cheek, hitting them in the forehead, hitting them behind the ear. He just has to make contact. Most of his punches are crazy and wild, but it doesn't really matter. And I think he's learned a lot from that Stipe fight, that first Stipe fight, which happened, I don't know, three years ago now. I don't think he's going to come in out of shape. I don't think he's going to come in and, and get tired too easy. But Stipe has to deal with him getting blitzed the entire fight. And that's 25 minutes. That's a long time to try to avoid a single punch, especially in the early rounds. So I got Francis Ngannou in that. All right. The next thing is also UFC related. So for those of you that don't like uh, MMA, you're going to hate this. Just keep fast forwarding. I don't care. But there's been a lot made about Kamaru Usman's last win. And this is a question that I got. It's, is Kamaru Usman now the welterweight goat over George St. Pierre? If not, is he at least close? No, no, no. He is not the goat and he is not close. So Welterweight is 170 pounds. That is what George St. Pierre ruled for a very, very, very long time in the UFC. Okay. Kamaru Usman is a very good fighter, but we just need to break it down a little bit. Kamaru Usman has defended his belt three times. Okay. GSP defended his 170 pound title literally three times that many times. Nine times he defended his belt. Okay. So let's talk about Usman. He beat Tyron Woodley to win the title. Very good fight. He defended against Colby Covington. Dog fight, razor thin, but he ended up finishing Colby Covington. Then he beat the wildly overrated Jorge Masvidal on short notice. And then he recently beat Gilbert Burns. Three very good fighters. But let me just run off what GSP did in this division. He beat Matt Hughes, who at the time was the 170 pound goat to win the interim title. Then he beat Matt Serra to win the undisputed title. And then he ran off these names in title defenses. John Fitch, BJ Penn, Tiago Alves, Dan Hardy, Josh Koscheck, Jake Shields, Carlos Condit, Nick Diaz, Johnny Hendricks. So, no. Kamaru Usman is not close. And people are like, well, what's Kamaru Usman going to have to do to get, to get closer or whatever? I don't know. Defend his belt six more times? Because if he defends his belt six more times, he has tied GSP for the number of defenses, the record for defenses in the 170-pound division in the UFC. So no, he is not close. Moving on. All right, guys, now we're going to get a little political here. Next question. What grade would you give Joe Biden as president so far? This is kind of a funny one. I I don't really know (laughs) exactly what all that's about, but I'm going to go ahead and say F-. minus. Is F minus one that I can literally say without anyone thinking I'm not giving the guy uh, very many props here? But here's the thing, guys. From the very beginning of his, when we knew he was going to be president, when we knew Trump wasn't going to, you know, pull some rabbit out of the hat and end up being the president, I created a note on my phone. The title of the note is this, Biden's horrible, terrible, evil, wrong, stupid deeds. Okay. So basically I am keeping track year by year of the horrifically stupid things that Joe Biden is doing and the things that will affect the United States for for the long term, okay? So I'm just going to run down the stuff that's happened so far. 
He's basically been in office for five minutes, but let's go ahead and run down the list. He rejoined the Paris Climate Accord on day one. He stopped border wall construction on day one. He rejoined the World Health Organization on day one, canceled the Keystone Pipeline Project on day one. He allowed illegal immigrants to be counted in the census on day one. He eliminated the regulation that would keep uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants in Mexico while they were awaiting trial. That was a day one thing. He got rid of the 1776 convention on day one. He eliminated the so-called Muslim ban, which was not a Muslim ban on day one. He signed an order which allowed anyone under the age of 18 to choose what locker room and bathroom they wanted to use, basically uh, allowing for them to compete, you know, biological males to compete in female sports. He did that on day one. He also signed a mass mandate on all federal property, but then he proceeded to immediately walk around federal, federal property without a mask. That was day one. Here's some other ones that didn't happen on day one. He reversed the Trump ban on transgender people serving in the military. He wants all federal agencies to focus on equity. Now, now not equality, but equity. He's removing the Trump ban on sensitivity and equity training. He reversed the Mexico City policy. So essentially me as an American taxpayer, I am funding abortions overseas, the murder of children overseas. He gave an executive order to reverse the Trump ban on federal funds for international Planned Parenthood abortion businesses. So even more abortion stuff. He removed us from the Geneva consensus. Uh, so that's a coalition of 34 pro-life countries that President Trump put together uh, that agree there is no right to abortion. He brought back catch and release for people caught at the southern border. And then he also made some fat transgender dude the assistant health secretary. Okay, so this is a guy that thinks he's a woman, dresses up like a woman. She, she, he, they, they, sir, whatever, is the assistant health secretary. Someone who has a mental illness that has been propagating this mental illness for a very long time is the assistant health secretary. Okay, so... I don't see the through line here. Everyone's talking about, you know, how, how nice he is and how it's this return to normalcy. And gosh, he's just, he's just old Joel and he's just, he's a nice guy. And I just don't, you know, it's just good. It's calming to have, you know, an empathetic guy in the White House. Well, guess what? I don't really care about empathy. I care about policy. And so far the policy has been horrible and it really hasn't been policy because it's mainly been executive orders. So F minus moving on. What are your thoughts on the scandal with New York governor, Andrew Cuomo? Okay. So give you a very, very short thing. For those of you that don't live here, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was Mr. Lockdown. He was, according to Joe Biden, the gold standard for COVID during COVID. He was the gold standard for everything that was happening. He was the best governor at handling COVID, supposedly. But what ended up happening is he and his department were completely lying about the number of people that had been killed in nursing homes because of COVID. Because Andrew Cuomo, in his infinite wisdom, decided early on in the pandemic and throughout the, 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 you know, the months after that, decided that it would be a great idea to send people with COVID back into the nursing homes. Now, people that are nursing home level in terms of their age are the most susceptible to COVID. But he didn't want to, quote unquote, overwhelm the hospital system. Even though Samaritan's Purse created a hospital in, in the, the middle of New York and basically it was empty, they had that big ship, that traveling hospital that they sent to the harbor and that was basically empty. They were not even close to being overwhelmed in New York. And yet Andrew Cuomo is shipping these people back into the nursing homes. Well, lo and behold, people found out that he had been lying about the number of people that had died from exposure to COVID in nursing homes to the tune of about 50%. He adjusted the number by 50%, okay? Now, I'm not the least bit surprised that this happened. Apparently, Andrew Cuomo is a bully. He's a horrifically, you know, evil and conniving politician, which basically just means he's a politician. But right now, he's getting thrown under the bus. He, he's being taken out behind the barn and shot now 
Because he's not needed anymore. Because the election's over. Because you needed an Andrew Cuomo to talk about how bad the orange man was, how bad Trump was, and how, you know, if he shows his face in New York again, I'm going to give him an old smack. I'm going to give him the old right there Fred. But now he's, he's not politically necessary anymore. And so now you have all these kind of democratic politicians or democratic media people, which is essentially the same thing, basically saying we're, we're not with Andrew Cuomo anymore. Like we, we, there's going to be a criminal investigation, blah, blah, all this. But the interesting thing about the timing of when this story broke that he had basically been lying horrifically about the statistics, a few days after, or maybe a week after, Ted Cruz decides to go to Mexico. And I think there was one uh, group that, this watchdog group that basically said ABC News, one of the main news sources here in the United States, they did four times the amount of coverage of Ted Cruz going to Mexico when it was cold in Texas than they did for the New York governor lying about the amount of people that died under his watch because of his decisions. So absolutely astounding. I think the guy absolutely needs to pay for this, but he's not going to. You think under the Biden administration, they're going to let this guy hang? I just, I just don't understand why anyone would say that. I don't see it. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see it. All right, next question here. What is your reaction to the actress Gina Carano being fired by Lucasfilm because of her social media post? Um, so, well, let me back up. This is the post that got Gina Carano fired. So Gina Carano, she was in, uh, what was the name of the superhero? Deadpool. She was in that. She was in The Mandalorian, the Star Wars thing, the spinoff, whatever. She was going to be spun off into another show. Former MMA fighter, basically the first main female star MMA fighter. Like there would be no Ronda Rousey without her. There would be no Amanda Nunes without her. But this was the post that quote got her fired. Okay. So I'm just going to read the post and then I'll describe the picture. Here was the post. Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? So that was the text of what was said. And then the picture was a Jewish woman back during that time who was running away from a bunch of German boys that were beating her. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm not typically a fan of people using any type of Holocaust or Nazi comparisons, right? Because they're used too often. So there's somebody in Congress that you don't like, ah, oh, they're a Nazi. They're just like Hitler. Really? Are they just like Hitler? Oh, Donald Trump's a Nazi. Is he? Is, is he like Hitler? He, he rounded up millions and millions of people of a certain ethnic group and decided to kill them systematically. He's just like Hitler? just like him? Really? So most of the time when you're comparing, oh, you hate someone for their political views to people being rounded up in the streets, put on freezing cold trains and taken out into the middle of nowhere to be put into a gas chamber. No, can't be with you on that. Really kind of a stupid thing for you to post. But the backlash was that she was supposedly being anti-Semitic by pointing out that she thinks apparently Jews being rounded up and killed is just like disagreeing with someone's political opinion nowadays. Again, I don't like the comparison, but to say that it's anti-Semitic is to have basically no functioning brain, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. But the thing, guys, is you got to be honest. She wasn't just fired for her social media posts. She had some other posts that some people thought were questionable or whatever, but they were basically mainline conservative thoughts. She was fired because she was a heterodox thinker. She might be a conservative. 
if you hear her talk, you know, she did a recent interview with Ben Shapiro on the Ben Shapiro show, uh, or on the Sunday special rather. And basically, I don't know that she's really thought through much of her political leanings, right? I don't think she's thought through a bunch of issues. I don't think she's an expert on a lot of issues, but she might end up being a conservative. That might be her worldview, but she was fired because she didn't think like everybody else that worked for Lucasfilm. She didn't just buy into things and she was a little bit too loud about it. So it's like they want all these women to be, you know, these think for themselves and I don't need a man and I'm bold and I'm whatever. But then they just want them to sit in the box and think inside the box and shut their mouths. Isn't that interesting? These people that are like propagating uh, women's rights and all these different things, they just want the women to shut up if they don't think the way that they do. Isn't that interesting? So I did think that it was cool that within 24 hours of it being announced that she was fired by Lucasfilm, that she signed a deal with the Daily Wire. So that's, you know, Jeremy Boring and Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and, and the whole crew. She signed a deal with the Daily Wire to basically produce and star in her own film. And so this is a nice little landing spot for somebody that was canceled by Hollywood that she can keep her career going. So I don't know what that's going to look like. You know, we're probably years away from seeing what the fruits of that type of a partnership are, but I thought it was interesting. I'm I'm glad that she found a nice soft place to land. All right, next question here. What are your thoughts on the continued COVID lockdowns, especially with schools still not opening? Um, so at this point, guys, the vaccines are getting out to a lot of people. But even if the vaccines weren't getting out to a lot of people right now, these lockdowns are ridiculous. They they need to end. The damage being done with these lockdowns, and I've talked about this at nauseum, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. The damage that has been done by these lockdowns is gonna far and away exceed the loss of life from COVID. So I think uh, just over half a million people have died in the United States from COVID. Each one of those is unfortunate. It shouldn't have happened, but we're going to see a whole lot more deaths of despair. With alcoholism, abuse, all the under and unreported abuse that is happening all across this country and all across the world, we're going to see things that are way, way worse because of these lockdowns. And, you know, this person also mentioned in the question, especially with schools not opening, I just got to be honest, and this is not going to make me very many friends, but screw teachers and screw teachers unions. We're, We're supposed to sit here and pretend that being a school teacher is some sort of heroic deed that these people that we should just bow down to them because they're, they're teaching our children. Well, a lot of school teachers are glorified babysitters. Because guys, when I look back on my K through 12 education, I can name on one hand the number of teachers that actually gave a damn about being a teacher and showed it, that they were effective teachers, they, they taught us in a certain direction, and, and they were there for us and, and all those things on one hand. And I had dozens and dozens and dozens of teachers. So this idea that teachers is like this one homogenous group of heroic individuals is absolutely crazy. And then you have the fact that they're supported by these teachers unions, which basically won't allow for you to get fired. They collectively bargain against you, the taxpayer, and and you're the ones that pay their salaries. I'm sorry. I'm so over the romanticized view of teachers. And this started a few years ago in the state of Oklahoma when the teachers went on strike because they wanted higher pay. And yet they had no ideas for how they should get the higher pay for where the money should come from. And at no point did they say why they deserved a raise. Oh, why do you deserve a raise? Oh, because we're teachers because we're important because bow down to us. Why? Why? You're a kindergarten teacher. You're a babysitter. You're a third grade teacher. You, you barely know how to get these kids to read. What, what are you talking about? 
Why, why in the world should we pay you double what you're being paid now or 50% higher or 25% higher? The, these teachers, they're, gosh, they're just like, they've, they've fallen in love with their own story of how hard their life is. All of these teachers knew they got into teaching and that it wasn't going to pay millions of dollars. They made a choice to go to school or to get a certificate to become a teacher. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to change. I'm supposed to rewire my brain because they made a decision and now they don't want to live with it. I'm sorry. If you don't want to be paid like a teacher anymore, go and get another job. Get a job in the private sector. Get a job where you're not protected by some union. Go get a different job. But the fact that these schools aren't opening, it's because of the teachers and the teachers unions. And it's not everywhere, but in the places where they're not open, they don't care about these kids. You have kids that haven't been in school for over a year at this point, over a year. Why in the world are you doing that? And then you get asked questions about it. It's like, oh, you know, it's just safety. And, you know, we, we don't want to feel like these teachers have to come back, you know, when things aren't safe and, and we haven't really figured out how we're going to do the ventilation systems and how many, all these things. They don't care about the kids. They don't care about the fact that they're basically using fear porn on these kids. It's like, yeah, yeah you can come back to school, but you have to sit at this, this plexiglass cube where you can't see anybody, you can't see the board, you can't interact with anyone, you got to wear this mask, and gosh, if you take your mask below your nose, you know, basically your world's going to just disappear. You're going to die. You're going to die right here in front of all your friends. We've just made this horrifically stupid, you know, it just literally gets me fired up, and I'm so glad that I don't actually have a kid in school right now, that my kid is too young to be in school because I would be losing my mind if I had to deal with these teachers and these teachers unions, basically telling me how great and how brave they are. Because so far in the United States, we don't have a single case, a single case where it can be proven that a teacher was infected with COVID while at school. Because everyone just assumes, oh, you know, teachers are, you know, these kids rather are these vectors for transmission of the coronavirus, but we're not seeing that anywhere. There have been teachers that have gotten coronavirus they, they've gotten sick. Some of them have died, but there's no proof that they got that from a kid at school. So I'm kind of getting fired up just because I, I, it blows my mind that we look at teachers as if they're this special job, this super special job. It shouldn't be that important. Now they do teach our kids. They, they do take care of our kids. And there are some amazing teachers out there. Some of them listening to this podcast. And I just hope you're not one of those teachers that is just mailing it in, right? And part of the problem of having a union take care of this is because you, if you're a great teacher, a dutiful teacher, a wonderful mentor, you make the same amount of money as the dopey guy or gal down the hallway that's just plugging in a movie and saying, hey, watch this for the next week. So enough with these teachers are heroes and they're wonderful and we need to bow down and do everything we can to take care of the teachers. Take care of yourselves. Next question. What are your thoughts on the Canadian pastor that was just arrested for violating COVID protocols by preaching a sermon? Is this indicative of something larger or is it just a private citizen defying his local government? So when I was asked about this, guys, I got to be honest with you. Unfortunately, I had no idea this had really happened. Okay. I had seen some stuff online. I'd saw the, the headline and I assumed there was more to it. Yeah. I'm sure he wasn't just arrested for a sermon. He probably did something terrible, but, but whatever. But then I got asked about it enough to where it's like, okay, I really need to look into this. So the name of the pastor is pastor James Coates of Grace Life Church in Edmonton, uh, which is in Alberta, Canada. Okay. So in Canada, there was something called the public health act, which uh, under this act, one of the things in terms of churches is it was allowing churches to meet at 15, that's one, 5% capacity. 
Okay. But physical distancing, distancing rather had to be enforced and mask wearing had to be requested. Okay. So pastor Coates essentially decided that he was going to hold church as normal that, you know, for, forget about this 15% capacity thing, which it's like, oh yeah, thank you Canadian government for allowing us to have 15% capacity. Where did you get the, what's the scientific backing for the 15%? Do you have any freaking idea? But then the Canadian government got the courts involved to make a violation of the public health act, a criminal act, which is likely to judicial overreach, but I don't know if there's anything they can do about that in Canada. Okay. But he was subject to arrest. He knew it. And so he ended up turning himself into authorities. Okay. So pastor Coates, the, the here, here was kind of the crazy thing. He was, he will only be released as of right now, if he agrees to comply with the public health orders under the public health act. Okay. So as of the recording of this show, he is refusing to do so. Now this next bit of information, I'm not seeing it reported a lot, but I did talk physically to a member of that church in Canada here recently within the last couple of days. And we're looking to, to get his wife on. We're trying to maybe even get the associate pastor of that church on to try and confirm some of these things. And also just to give us updates on what we can do to help. But apparently the Canadian authorities offered bail in this situation. If pastor Coates would quit his job as a pastor and not go back to his church congregation. Let me just repeat that. He was offered bail, but not, not cash bail, mind you, right? Not, Hey, you know, a million bucks and we'll, we'll let you out. They said, we'll, we'll let you out temporarily while you're awaiting these, these charges, right? This trial or whatever, but you have to quit being a pastor and you can't go back to your church. That's insanity. That's authoritarianism. It is absolutely an infringement on religious liberty. Now it feels like they're making an example out of this guy. And I think it has a lot to do with not as much about the fact that he violated their, you know, whatever act that they had. It's because of his sermon content, because his sermon content as of late, the last sermon he performed before he was arrested is very critical of his local government. And he describes biblically what the local government is supposed to do and supposed to be about. So I've actually got a video in the show notes that somebody sent me. That's kind of a mashup of his last little sermon. It's, it's apparently over an hour long, the actual sermon. This one's more like 20 minutes or so, but very critical of the government and their role in the everyday lives of its citizenry, but also in the lives of the church and it's con- the congregation overall. And so as of right now, the word that I've gotten is that the Canadian government is trying to do a very, very quiet, but very, very quick trial of this man. Um, again, I think they're trying to make an example out of him. I'm trying to get all of the behind the scenes information that I possibly can. And guys, just so you know, if I can get someone from the church or the pastor's wife on here, we're just going to throw it in, you know, basically as soon as I record it, you know, I'll upload it and it'll come right out to you. Hopefully we have something like that happening. But as of right now, the word that I've gotten is that the lawyers, his lawyers are working on this. There are a bunch of other churches in the surrounding communities that are all planning to open up to full capacity in defiance of the Public Health Act in Canada this weekend to show solidarity with Pastor Coates and his congregation. So there's a lot of moving parts happening right now. I don't see as many of the big dogs really talking about this, and maybe that's because you know we're here in America and this is happening in Canada, but this is a horrifically terrible situation, and the Canadian government is trying to jail a pastor, essentially, for preaching. So. That, that's a big deal. And I'm not really huge with that. All right. Next question here. Do you think we should be more concerned about the quote equity movement unquote in the government or the equality act? 
Okay, so uh, let me read that again. <laughs> Do you think we should be more concerned about the equity movement in government or the Equality Act? Okay, so the equity movement is a lot of people in government are talking about trying to create equity within these federal programs, not equality. Okay, so equality means that we all, regardless of where we were born, how much money we have or what we look like, we have equal opportunity to compete and achieve. Now, equity means we're going to guarantee outcome, right? That's very communistic, very Marxist. But basically, I think... Well, I guess that's the equity movement. And then the Equality Act is essentially where they're going to be adding the LGBTQ plus and the plus obviously is just going to go on and on forever to the Civil Rights Act here in the United States. So basically that would lead directly to an infringement on religious rights, because if you're a Catholic school and a transgender person decides they want to apply for a job at that Catholic school and you say, sorry, we don't, we don't, we, we don't want you to work here because we don't agree with your lifestyle or if a homosexual were to do the same thing, then, then basically that person would be able to sue the Catholic school if the Equality Act passes. So I don't, I guess I'm not going to answer your question the way that you want to answer it. I think they're both absolutely horrifically terrible and evil and satanic. I think these are, um, the equity movement is just an attack on regular decency, just overall decency. And there's nothing that you can do today to counteract any of the wrongs that happened previously. So this equity movement is very, very dangerous. But the Equality Act, if it does pass, which, you know, we'll see, uh, Joe Biden basically has a free ride for the next two years because he's got the House and the Senate, and he's going to be putting a lot of his own federal judges into places. He doesn't have the Supreme Court, thank God. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see where it goes, but they're both very, very concerning. All right, next question here. I heard you say in passing in a recent podcast that you think our constitutional republic is already over. Did you really mean that? And if you do, why would you say that? Uh, well, I don't remember when I said that, but uh, I don't remember what episode that was on. But yeah, to a degree, I really do think that our constitutional republic is over. Because again, we don't have a democracy. This is a constitutional republic. If you don't understand the difference, go look it up. You got Google. But the problem that I see is I don't see the big sweeping change that is going to swing the pendulum back over to a more even side of things. And what I mean by that is the next generation, or we'll say the current generation, millennials, which is the dominant generation, and then the next generation are both pinging to be way, way, way more liberal than Gen X or baby boomers. Way more liberal, right? Especially on social issues, right? And so... Also, people that think that way, that are more liberal or more leftist, they run all of our main media sources. They also run big tech. They run, they're starting to run big business. You have companies like Coca-Cola, probably the most capitalistic country maybe ever in the history of the planet, having these, uh, these internal meetings and these internal trainings where they're telling their white employees to act less white and be less white, right? There's all this kind of horrifically stupid thing, these horrifically stupid things that are happening, but the reason why I think that our constitutional republic may be over and we just haven't really seen the finality of it is because I do see that the state of Texas is going to turn blue, perhaps by the next presidential election. Okay. And if that happens, Republicans will never win another national election. And people are like, you can't say that because, you know, California used to be Republican. Now it's Democrat. You know, we could flip California. Guys, the people that are leaving California, are the people that can afford to. Okay. And they're leaving in droves to the tune of tens of thousands of people, you know, every year, maybe even more than that. But most of those people, they're taking refuge in the state of Texas. And I talked about this on the podcast with Dan Crenshaw just briefly, but again, in the state of Texas, 
You have to think, you came from California, you're a liberal, but you hate ta- the taxation you were under and ca- some of the draconian policies that were happening in your state. So you moved to Texas, right? The, you know, in your mind, the wild, wild west, right? You know, it's, it's crazy down there. They got tigers in their front yard. That's what you think. But when it comes to ballot box day, you've got two candidates. So candidate red is the taxation that you want and the fiscal policy that you want. But he also believes that we should have a secure Southern border. He also believes that we should not, he or she believes that you shouldn't be able to kill babies in the, in the womb, shouldn't be able to murder them. They also believe in, you know, basically typical right wing conservative thought. And then you got the blue candidate person that is the same taxation style as what was going on in California, the same fiscal policy, but he thinks, you know, a five-year-old girl can choose to be a boy that we can murder kids in the womb because of women's rights or women's choice or whatever. They believe that we should just have an open border, blah, 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 whatever. Those people are not going to vote for the red candidate. And yes, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but fiscal policy and taxation is not typically kind of an emotive issue for people. People vote with their guts. They don't always vote with their brains. And it's just kind of like, They just can't bring themselves to vote for someone that doesn't think a woman should be able to murder a baby in her womb. They just can't do it. And so they're going to check the blue box. And so when you have that many people coming in from other places into Austin and into Dallas and into San Antonio and into Houston, and then you have all of the people in those areas that are raising these children that are much more liberal, it is a matter of time before Texas is blue. Just like the state of Virginia and maybe what we saw with Georgia and Arizona, Texas might skip the purple phase. It may skip the toss-up phase and just go to solidly blue. Because two of the, or I guess three of the largest metropolitan areas that are going to have the most explosive growth, according to people that look at this, are Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. Those, Those areas might double in size in the next decade. Do you think most of those people are conservative Christians? I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't see it. So again, in terms of the Republic, I think we're going to get to a point where what are Republicans going to do? You know, they can compete in the House, they can compete in the Senate, but they're not going to be able to compete for the White House. They're not going to be able to win the Electoral College. If you don't get Texas or California, you don't win the Electoral College. It just doesn't happen. All right, next question here. What are your thoughts on the viral video of OU football player Spencer Jones and his buddy getting <laughs> getting beat up in a bar bathroom by two much smaller guys? So, All right. So if you haven't seen that video, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to share it, but if I remember, I'll put that in the show notes. But yes, there was a fight that happened. There's this video of, you know, it's a kind of a full bathroom, but it was on campus corner near the OU campus. And this football player and his buddy, both big dudes, there were these two smaller guys and they were kind of like goading him like, what are you going to do, pussy? What are you going to do? Are you going to fight? You know, that kind of like typical, I'm a drunk, you know, frat guy type, type of environment. But then the guy behind the football player pushes one of the, one of the dudes, one of the smaller guys. And then the two smaller guys proceed to absolutely whip these dudes. I mean, whip them bad. The football player dodged a major bullet because this guy ate about three right hooks, but then the dude got a kind of a body lock on him and he was going to basically throw him over his shoulder and take him down. But he kind of grazed against the back of his buddy. And so it kind of softened his fall. But then, you know, this guy who apparently was, had some MMA training, was clearly a wrestler. He got hooks in on this guy. He kind of beat him up. He, he did a little bit of a rear naked choke, but he wasn't under the jaw. You know, uh, it was, it was a bad beat down. Apparently Spencer Jones almost lost an eye in the fracas, or at least that's what his lawyers are saying or whatever. But here's the deal. Enough people were talking about this situation that I felt the need to actually like, which I don't feel this need much anymore to write a little bit of a Facebook post on my personal Facebook, because I felt like this situation 
and what some people were saying about it led to a lot more kind of bigger issues. And so I'm just going to read to you what I put on my Facebook because I made a lot of observations and then we'll just kind of go from there, but I'll just read it straight through just so you can kind of hear what my thoughts were. So I'll just read it as it was, as I wrote it. So here we go. I've been a part of a lot of different discussions this week since the video of OU football player, Spencer Jones getting beat up in a bar bathroom went viral. Okay. I think there are some very, <coughs> ah, do it alive. Sorry. Taking a drink. Here we go. Made it almost an hour without my voice giving out. So let's keep going. I think there are some very important lessons that we, especially the men, can glean from this situation. Okay. One, most people completely overestimate their ability to fight and protect themselves. Most people just assume that they'll be able to just turn it on when they need to fight. Many of these people have never reckoned with the reality that their mindset in the fire of the moment will be nothing like their mindset when they're surrounded by safety. Number two, most people don't really understand the concept of violence. Many people would consider themselves to be pacifistic to a certain degree, but that is until violence confronts them directly. At that point, there is no conversation. There is no reasoning. There is just violence. If you are ill-prepared to deal with that violence, it will almost assuredly end up poorly for you. Number three, most people don't really understand the consequences of violence. When people watch MMA, boxing, street fight videos on YouTube, etc., they see people getting rocked or even KO'd, they marvel or celebrate, and then they move on. On many occasions, when fighters leave a fight, they are leaving with severe, if not permanent, damage. Getting knocked out is no joke and not a laughing matter. Number four, most people completely overestimate size and athleticism. If you looked at the tail of the tape of this viral fight, most people that don't know anything about fighting would have automatically assumed that Jones would have the upper hand in the fight simply because he was the much bigger man. Unfortunately for Jones, the size and athleticism discrepancy was too narrow to make up for a tremendous fight IQ and experience discrepancy. Number five, you never know who you're actually messing with. The most dangerous human beings that I know personally look like they can do your taxes, and some of them actually do that for a living, ironically enough. The actual baddest dudes in the room aren't typically rocking neck tattoos and talking loudly about their fight experience. That should be considered before you go poking your finger in some dude's chest at the bar. Number six, street fights are ridiculously stupid, even if you know how to fight. In the video of this fight, we don't see, we don't get to see what happened before the camera started rolling, but we can safely assume that any slights or offenses could have been handled without fisticuffs. But it doesn't matter how good you are at fighting if the guy you're beating up has a buddy nearby that you can't see. It doesn't take years of training to blindside somebody with a kick, punch, stab, shot, etc. The risk-reward ratio for street fights is insanely low. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Number seven, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth doesn't mean what you think it does. This quote from Jesus recorded in Matthew 5, 5 is recorded in Matthew 5, 5, but the meaning of that verse is truly lost on modern readers. Most people think meek is equal to weak because of the modern use of the word. However, as some scholars have pointed out, the use of the word meek in this context likely refers to a person who is fully capable of dominance and perhaps violence but doesn't wield that unnecessarily. It is knowing how to use the sword, but keeping it sheathed until it is absolutely and completely necessary. Number eight, this last one. If you are untrained, you are unprepared. Most people go through their lives without experiencing a violent confrontation firsthand, but that is no reason to be unprepared. If violence visits you, you don't have time to train at that point. You only have time to react. 
As many coaches and trainers have pointed out, your ability to fall or your ability will fall to your level of training. I am so thankful for my family at the Forge in Edmond because training there for the last three and a half years has taught me that I was woefully unprepared for real violence before I started training, how to be humble with the skills I have gained, and how to show others the tremendous benefits of training. You are responsible for your safety and the safety of those around you. There won't always be someone around to help. There won't always be a police officer close enough to expeditiously come to your aid. You are the first line of defense and protection. And if you suffer the bad consequences of being unprepared, it is your fault and your fault alone. With the looming threat of a wolf, the sheep can only rest easy because of the presence of the sheepdog. So those are my thoughts on that. Guys, last question of the day. Here we are for all you football nerds. Since Tom Brady just won his seventh Super Bowl, is it now time to declare him the greatest athlete overall of all time, regardless of sport? All right. So I'm going to refer to that title as the GOAT GOAT. All right. The greatest of all time of the greatest of all times. All right. So in order to start this, before I give you my answer, in order to kind of start this debate, we have to look at the athletes that have won the most major sports championships. Okay, so we have Bill Russell, who he won an insane 11 NBA championships in just a 13 year career. So he has the most of anyone in all the major sports. So the major sports are football, baseball, football, and hockey. Then you got Yogi Berra for the Yankees. He won 10 World Series titles. Joe DiMaggio, nine World Series titles. Mickey Mantle, seven World Series titles. Then you've got Tom Brady, seven Super Bowls, which is insane. And then you got Michael Jordan with six NBA championships. So those are kind of the big stars. And yeah, there's some other guys that have, you know, won a lot of the championships because they were on, you know, I think Robert Ory has six or seven championships, but he's not really considered in this type of discussion. But I don't mean to take anything away from any of these men, but we're talking about the goat goat here. So I want to dive into that list that I just showed you, that I just talked about. So let's talk about Bill Russell, 11 NBA championships in 13 years. When Bill Russell played for the Boston Celtics, there were somewhere between eight and 12 teams in the entire NBA during that time. And almost every season that he won a championship, I think in 10 of the 11 seasons, there were only eight teams. Okay, eight teams, that's it. So there wasn't just this overwhelming amount of competition. So again, we're talking about the GOAT-GOAT. I'm not saying 11 championships is not a big deal, but there were only eight teams. It was basically a, a small regional tournament every single year that they played. Then you've got Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey Mantle. When they all played for the Yankees, when they won all those world championships, there were 16 teams in all of Major League Baseball, and there was no playoffs. There were just the pennant winners that met in the World Series. Okay? So some people are like, you know, that's, that's even more impressive that the Yankees were able to win so many pennants. Again, they were only competing with about eight other American League teams. So it's similar to the Bill Russell thing. Again, I'm not crapping on dudes that won 10, 9, and 7 World Series titles, respectively. That is an unbelievable accomplishment. But there wasn't the level of competition then. There just wasn't. Then you've got Tom Brady. He played in a full 32-team NFL for his entire career. Okay? And then you got Michael Jordan. He, when he played, there were 27 teams in the NBA during his first three-peat, and then 29 teams during his second three-peat, okay? So I think that automatically kind of takes Tom Brady and, and Michael Jordan to a little bit of a different place, just because of the level of competition and just the sheer number of teams, free agency, all those things. So here's, here's a pre-verdict note before I give you the actual answer here to this question. I just got to tell you, this is legitimately the dumbest, most useless, impossible debate 
ever. Because there's way too many things to consider, right? The first thing is, how can we compare someone that played baseball in the 20s to someone that's playing football in the 2000s? It's a silly argument, okay? But also, what constitutes an athlete? Because some people would say that Michael Schumacher, you know, who used to drive Formula One or whatever racing thing that he did, he's the greatest athlete ever. But some people would not even consider him an athlete. Okay, well, you know, because that's what constitutes a sport. Is racing a sport? Is golf a sport? I don't think golf's a sport. But, you know, what constitutes a sport? That's a debate. And, and how do you weigh everything? Again, how do you weigh Babe Ruth never having to, to face a level of competition because they kept uh, the Negro Leagues to the side, right? He never had an at-bat against, against the best Negro League pitchers at the time. He, he never had an at-bat against Satchel Page that I can recall, right? How, how do you weigh that? Also, how do you weigh that, you know, with a guy like Mike Trout, who's the greatest baseball player right now, maybe the greatest baseball player of the modern era, because he's having to go up against every relief pitcher that he ever sees is throwing 98-99 with a huge hook. They didn't have that back in the day, right? You know, they didn't have that when, when these guys were playing, even when like Griffey was playing, you didn't have a lot of that. I mean, it's almost like saying, could Batman beat Spider-Man? That's what this debate is. It is so dumb. And so useless, but here we are. I've spent five minutes talking about it, so it's at least somewhat useless. So, or useful, I guess. Here's the verdict. Let's just get rid of all the other stuff. Here's the verdict. Tom Brady is not the GOAT GOAT. He's not. And here are the deciding factors. Again, you have to nitpick if you're talking about the GOAT GOAT. If you're going to make me have this stupid debate, we have to nitpick. Here's the deciding factors for Brady not being the GOAT GOAT. Here's the first one. Multiple cheating scandals that he was involved with when he was with the Patriots. You had Deflategate, you had Spygate, where they were basically spying on the other teams and getting their signals and plays. There were multiple allegations of tech interference in Gillette Stadium, messing with opposing teams, messing with their, their headsets and their radios and stuff like that. It is just all over the Patriots. And there was a lot of stuff that they did to cheat that we don't even know about. And then there are some, some of the non-cheating things to note. He'd likely have two less Super Bowl championships if the tuck rule thing didn't happen which allowed him early in his career to, to win the AFC championship over the Raiders and go to the Super Bowl, which he ended up winning. And also if Pete Carroll wasn't kind of a weirdo and a moron and tried to get too cute towards the end of that game, if you'll recall, they were on like the, the one yard line and they could have gotten three chances to punch it in from the one yard line. Pete Carroll apparently decides to do a play action slant pass, gets the ball intercepted. They would have lost that. He would have lost that Super Bowl. Okay. So he wouldn't just have, you know, the one loss to the Eagles and the two losses to the Giants. So again, those are two championships that easily could have gone away. He didn't have any impact in those games being decided in that way. One was decided by the referees and one was decided by Pete Carroll. And then also, I do have to admit that quarterbacks have an enormous impact on the game, right? Of any of the guys. That's why they get paid what they get paid because they have an enormous impact on the game. But there are so many other people that can affect a football game. Football is 11 versus 11. But then each team has almost 50 players on the roster. There are a lot of guys, offense, defense, and special teams that can affect a game, not just a quarterback. So again, I'm not nitpicking the guy for no reason. I'm nitpicking him because this is the goat-goat discussion. So my goat-goat, a little bit of extra bonus action for you, even though you didn't ask about this, my goat-goat is Michael Jordan, okay? Two three-peats. He was the MVP in all of his six NBA Finals appearances. Basketball is the game of the major sports where one player can have the biggest impact because it's, it's five V five, right? Which I know hockey is as well, but it's five V five. 
you know, it's, or I guess hockey would be 6v6, but it's 15 players are on the roster typically for an NBA team, but typically only 11 to 12 suit up. You know, especially in the NBA Finals, the rotation goes down to maybe like eight or nine players are actually getting time on the court. So one guy can have an enormous impact. And the teams that his Bulls teams beat in order to get to and win the NBA Finals, it's an astounding list of teams that is chock full of Hall of Famers. It's an unbelievable run that he had to to do all these things. Also, he's the biggest sports star in the history of sports, save for for maybe Babe Ruth, but he was kind of big for a different reason. You know, it's different era. You know, there wasn't, you know, media or 24-7 sports channels or anything like that. He's the biggest sports star we've ever seen. Bigger than any soccer player, bigger than any current player of any sport. He's the biggest sports star ever. He revolutionized what being a sports celebrity is. There, there weren't just these major sports celebrities that, you know, poor kids in, in these third world countries knew who Michael Jordan was, right? You, you don't have that. Like no kid growing up in the favelas, you know, Brazil or, you know, somewhere in the jungle in Africa, they don't know who Mike Trout is. They don't know who Patrick Mahomes is. I don't know who the best hockey player is right now, but they don't know who that guy is. Sorry to my listeners in Canada. They, they don't know who that guy is. They still know who Michael Jordan is. It's crazy. And he essentially also invented the sneaker game. You know, this billions of billions of dollar industry, sneakers. He basically invented that with the Jordans, right? And then you have, when the lights got brighter for Michael Jordan, he got better. He got better. He didn't shrink away from the spotlight. So in that way, he's the anti-LeBron. How many times have you seen LeBron pass the ball? He doesn't want to take the last shot. Right? He doesn't want to be the guy to mess up. He's the guy that's, you know, clinking three-pointers and missing free throws in the last, you know, two minutes of a game, right? Especially in playoff games. He's not the guy leading these people to victory whenever it's crunch time. That was Michael Jordan. So I know there are a lot of different arguments. Some guys are going to make arguments that are outside of the four major sports. But if we're talking about GOAT, GOAT, there is but one, and that's MJ. All right, guys, we made it through. Again, if you ever want your questions answered on this podcast. All you got to do is reach out to us via email. That's just info at undaunted.life, I-N-F-O at undaunted.life, or you can just send us a message on social media. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So I've got two links for you today. One, I've got the full report of the independent investigation into sexual misconduct of Ravi Zacharias. And then I've got that video of the pastor from Canada basically delivering his last sermon before he was arrested. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If we deserve a five-star review, just like I said from the beginning, leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2021, so if you want me to appear on your podcast, come to your men's event, talk to your team, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. That's info at undaunted.life. The website is www undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. 
Shut the fuck up.